Welcome to Park City Church. You're listening to our weekly message, where we hope you'll be inspired and encouraged to know and follow Jesus and welcome and serve others. Thank you for tuning in. I'm a Lord of the Rings fan, and as many of you are, and I've read through them at the end of last year again, and, uh, but was recently reminded of a scene uh, from, I believe, The Fellowship of the Ring, a conversation that Bilbo who's, you know, the main character of The Hobbit and is now at the beginning of The Lord of the Rings going to sort of hand that adventure on to the guys who will follow. And, uh, but he's having a conversation with Gandalf, this sort of wise figure, wizard figure, uh, about uh, his life recently. And he's, he's talking about kind of the weight of the, you know, the ring that he's carried and it's burdensome and it's not been without its adventure, but also it's come with much peril and it has had some great lingering effect, this kind of weight on his life. And he's having a conversation with Gandalf and says to him uh, in the sort of beginning moments of this story, uh, he's like, I feel, Gandalf, I feel, I feel all thin, uh, sort of stretched, if you will. He says, if you know what I mean, like, like, does anybody know what follows? Like butter scraped, who said it? Yeah. Like butter scraped over too much bread, technically not toast, but I know. Uh, Right, like, like butter scraped over too much bread. and uh, What a vivid image. Uh, I think maybe it's one you relate to just sort of on the surface of your life, right? How often have you felt? I mean, this is the way you feel. Like, I don't have the energy. I don't have the space, the capacity for kind of one more thing. And here you're trying to make me come to all this church stuff, right? Life is already full, right? I'm, I'm already like, like too little butter scraped over too much um, bread. And maybe like just there on its own, that's an image that resonates. But I think for me, uh, this, this, th- that move, that description, it comes to mind when I read passages like uh, what Josiah read for us this morning. Uh, you might call them, uh, you know, they're all over the New Testament, but these sort of uh, imperatively structured passages of Scripture which is how it's flowing in Peter. So last week, we started a new series on the book of Peter, and he's, he speaks to them as elect exiles. He says, you've been chosen. God has, in his grace, moved towards you. And a, a, one result of that is now you're like exiles, uh, literally in perhaps their sort of physical experience of the world, but also in, now their faith has changed their allegiance in the world, and so now they're sort of exiled culturally. So uh, he's kind of established this is who you are, the work that God has done in and for and through uh, you. And so now he turns a corner and says, well, this is now how, what it looks like for you to live that kind of life. I mean, even just the heading, depending on your sort of translation of the Bible, like called to be holy, this sort of, it's this imperatival push. God has made this difference in you. Now get on with the business of living up to that calling. And, and oftentimes when I read passages of scripture like this, I have that, I have that sort of lingering feeling that, that Bilbo referenced, that, uh, that man, that's great and all, but I often come up just, just a wee bit short, like, like not quite enough butter scraped over too much bread. So I'm going to ask you to kind of hold that feeling. Maybe that's not you. You're like, I'm doing pretty good. That's okay. I'm proud and happy, but hang with me. Uh, uh, and, and just kind of hold that feeling as we look at uh, these next few verses. And so the structure, you know, we read a lot of verses and we won't consider all of them, but the whole passage is kind of built around four uh, imperative like calls. 
commands to you and me. Like if, if you're like, oh, I'm surrendering my life to Jesus. I, I am in this camp, Peter, an elect exile. I recognize the differences grace has made in me. Well, now in, in this passage, you know, there's lots of other phrases and commands in here, but they're kind of built around four primary sort of uh, forceful imperative commands. And so we're, we'll just take each of them briefly in turn. And the first one is right here at the beginning, verse 13. I, I think I have them here on the screen, this first one here. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, he says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So right at the beginning, uh, the first command, he says the difference that Jesus has made in your life, set your hope on the grace that Jesus Christ is working for you. And it's this image, like taking with, taken with all the sort of other, I don't know, subordinate clauses of the passage. It's this image of like rolling, like a, a modern day sort of idiom would be like to roll up your sleeves. It's time to roll up your sleeves and lean into, let's use all the modern sort of phrases, lean into uh, this call, this, this call the, the hope that Jesus Christ has begun in you, but that you await, you know, its fullest sort of expression. Roll up your sleeves. Uh, again, right, so right from the beginning, it's, it's this, it's this hope-filled um, command to set your mind on the grace that Jesus has worked for you. Set your mind. There's, there's a deliberateness here. So in this first command, it's a, it's a kind of like, it's not just a sort of idle optimism. God will work all things out. It's not a kind of like, well, great, God has done this thing. I'll kick back and, uh, you know. God will sort out the rest. It's a kind of engaged eyes sort of with perspective on the the future hope that has begun now sort of that changes the way I think and act and move in the world now. That's the image, right? Okay, this is true. God has, has, has claimed you by his grace. Now he says, live in a way that your eyes are kind of set on that, the consummation of that gracious work in your life so that it changes the way you behave and live. Now, and again, you know, I read something, I'm like, yeah, that's great, yes, Uh, but the day-to-day of my life is often much more one of too little butter over too much bread. The pressures, responsibilities, shortcomings, all the things of my day-to-day present circumstances tend to kind of pull my vision downward, my focus away from from this sort of hope-filled calling that's meant to change the way, as we'll see, I, I move through the world. So that's the first one. Set your, set your heart, your hope on this grace that Jesus is working for you. Command number one. But again, we won't say everything there is to say, but let's look at the next sort of uh, command on which this passage kind of hangs and is built around. It's in verse 15. Uh, so, uh, he, well, he says in verse 14, as obedient children, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, right? You've been changed now. But he says, in verse 15, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all conduct. All right, so the first command was to set your, your, your heart, your, your attention on the grace of God. The second now is to be holy in the same way that your Father in heaven is holy. If there was ever a moment when I felt like too little butter over too much bread, it's this command. And this command shows up throughout, right? This is a reference way back to Leviticus. Jesus will pick it up in the Sermon on the Mount. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. There's this this move that that as our lives are changed, uh, as we we sort of 
acknowledge that, well, then the command to kind of live that out is that my character begins to reflect the character of God in heaven, right? The, the, the very character of God who has called me. And again, I'm just being sort of transparent with you. On the surface, I'm like, yeah, that's great. Like, this looks really nice, like crocheted on a plaque on my shelf, right? But, w- but when it gets to the nitty-gritty of how I treat my wife, Jess, when I'm having a bad day, or how I engage with my children uh, when, when, when I am frustrated about something completely unrelated, or how I relate to the neighbor that I like and the neighbor that I, that I don't like, right? When, when, when I try to sit with this, this, this command, be holy, be holy as your Father in heaven is holy, you know, I come up short. Like my, my holiness and yours, let's be honest, is always, always too little butter over too much bread, always. And yet here is this command. Here is this like, uh, Peter says, you want to know what it's like to live as elect exiles? Set your, you're going to set your affection, your hope on, on this future grace as it works out in your life. And you're going to be holy. You're going to have to step away from sort of former passions and, and interests and be holy as your father and heaven is holy, the character of God in all its fullness. You're going to be uh, what you were created and designed to be, kind of reflecting his good character in the world. I'm like, man, that's great. But, right? so that's command number two. All right, you guys with me? Uh, the third sort of, again, there are other commands in here, and we're going to look at some of these uh, descriptions around that particular one in just a moment. We're going to skip ahead just a few verses. So he unpacks that by taking them back to the Old Testament and then brings them back to what Jesus has done. And then in verse 22, he gives us a kind of third, like, forceful command. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, and then this command, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. All right, if, if, if be holy like God is holy is hard to live up to, right? Uh, to love others, to love others equally challenging, right? Uh, e- e- not, not you guys, right? Not you guys. You guys are very easy to love. Uh, but this movement here, Paul, this is kind of an interesting link from a pure heart. So God is working his character into us. And one, one uh, outworking of that is the, now the way in which I treat the people around me changes. It's an interesting move for Peter here that you're going to live as an elect exile. Uh, your heart will be set. Your, your attention will be focused on God's gracious work in your life. And that will change your attitude and behavior. Uh, your character will begin to reflect the character of God. And then interestingly, like that's seeming the pure heart as that change happens will change the way you love the people around you. Uh, it's, it's an interesting move from Peter that, that your God's work of grace in your life and mine is not just an individual sort of spiritual journey. That, that for Peter, right from the get-go, it happens within the context of, of community uh, that immediately you are pushed, we are nudged into how we relate to other people. Right? There's, there's a sense in which Peter says here that a changed relationship with God, our hearts changed by his grace, fixed on what he's doing, now lives reflecting his character. A changed relationship with God will change our relationship with others. And again, it sounds like a nice platitude, but I am oftentimes left wondering in the nitty gritty of my life when it comes to loving others, when it's inconvenient or, uh, you know, uh, all sorts of reasons, but 
this is a space where I, I feel like too often my experience is that of Bilbo's. The weight of my formal life or my selfish life sort of pulls a little too hard. I feel a stretch a little too thin, like butter over too much bread. You're like, how many times is he going to say that phrase? Just a few more, all right? Just a few more. A fourth and final command show, shows up in uh, chapter 2. All right, so we set our hope on the future working of this grace. We, we become holy like our fathers. Lord, be holy, says we, we love each other earnestly, immediately pushed into community with others. And then in, in verse uh, chapter 2, so put away all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. And this is sort of, in, in, in its uh, structure, kind of fits within this next command from verse 2, like newborn infants, kind of a summative like, statement, like newborn infants. Long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. Like, man, interesting, Peter. Verse 3, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. If I could, if we could sort of summarize this command, Peter finishes here by saying, like, the last sort of characteristic in this moment of your life will be that you will crave, you will crave what nourishes you. Right? you Paul's used all this imagery, you've been reborn been reborn like flesh is like grass he says we might say your your butter is always too little for too much bread right but like the change that God is working in you is imperishable he says you have tasted that the Lord is good now crave it crave it in a, in a sense and this old testament imagery here psalm 34 uh, taste and see that the Lord is good this imagery like like this sense of of kind of you got to come back to the work of grace that has started you on this journey in your life. Keep coming back to craving what you know has nourished this new birth. I do think it's worth noting, uh, verse 2, right, or chapter 2, verse 1, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. Uh, I don't think it's coincidental. These are things that destroy community. Peter has just said, one evidence of this calling of grace in your life will be the way you treat each other in community. And now he says all these things that are damaging that, right? Like an antidote to that is to crave the grace that started you on this journey to begin with. Once again, nudging us away from individualism, pulling us into life uh, together. Peter, Peter, I, I think in this moment brings me sort of the point I want to make, the singular point I hope you take away from this morning uh, outside of whatever your neighbor's toast preferences may have been, right? Uh, that, 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 uh, that there is a call here to live up to our calling. I mean, that's, that's true, live up to our calling. But what Peter does, I think, through the structure of these commands is he reminds us that we only live up to our calling when we live out of the grace of God we find in Jesus. That he bookends, right? He bookends this command, be holy like your father is holy, love each other. It's bookended with set your heart on this grace and crave this grace, right? That it starts and finishes with, with, with this sort of um, context of the fact that it is God's gracious work to you in Jesus that makes all the difference. And so rather than, so here's what I think that is helpful because what it, what it says to me is, is it's not on me to just kind of like muster it up, because inevitably, I will always be, you know where I'm going here, too little butter over too much 
bread. But they, the answer to that is, is, Peter says here, to set my heart on that grace at the beginning and to crave it at the end, to always and ever come back to my own need for the gracious work of God in Jesus Christ. Bookends here. Start and finish, beginning and end. The logic of this passage seems to me to suggest that all of it starts and finishes with, with the gracious work of God and Jesus. That you can live up to your calling, but, but, but the real truth here is that we live, we live up to our calling when we live out of God's grace to us. In Jesus, it's not just the bookends. I said the fat chunk uh, in the center of this text. If you go sort of back up, right after the command to be holy, he he takes this dive and picks up Old Testament language, and then uh, in verse nineteen reminds his readers then and now uh, of of the fact that verse eighteen they've been ransomed outside of the scope and ability, and even in response to the limits of their own holiness, they have been ransomed. He says, verse 19, by the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without a blemish or a spot. He who was foreknown before the foundation of the world but has been made manifest to you. And through him now, he says, you're believers, because of, because of him whom God has raised from the dead, given him glory, so that you, your faith and hope are in him. I, uh, I, again, I think it's not just beginning and end. It's the, it's the meat, the heart of the matter for Peter. Uh, so to help us, I'm going to leave the image of toast and bread. You guys are thankful, maybe, or hungry. I don't know. A uh, few things I enjoy more. Occasionally, like, we'll make, we'll, Jess will make bread at home. Get the bread maker going, you know, and, and with the, when, the, when it's hot and fresh, you know, not tied to any meal. You're just like, is it ready? And you get the butter. This is one, one positive influence of Jess in my life is she's lavish with the butter and just, just put it on the fresh bread. And, but when you're short, right, Jess is never short, so just go back for more, right? Uh, but but that, that feeling of always kind of being too little bread, uh, butter for too much bread, uh, I'll leave that image now that I've wet, wetted your appetite. And I'll move to another sphere, one final example. And I, I, want, I want to ask you to consider uh, sport with me. Uh, so please hang, hang with me. For those of you that aren't sports fans, uh, uh, I'll, I'll be brief, I think. But Novak Djokovic. What, you guys know Novak Djokovic? What sport does he play? Tennis, yeah, right? He doesn't just play tennis. He, he is, I mean, let's be honest. There's some debate. Is he the greatest of all time? I don't know. But I think it's safe to say he's the best in the world at this moment, for sure, right? Uh, well, maybe. Uh, but, but, but Djokovic, right, at, at the peak uh, of his sort of athletic prowess, uh, you guys maybe know last week he played in the U.S. Open, the fourth, the fourth and final of sort of the four major events of the year for tennis. And he had won the previous three and had won his way through to the final match. You guys know, you're, you guys are like, yeah, we know this already. Get to the, you know, I know there's a punchline. Let's hear it. Just let me, let me build it up a little bit. Right, but he gets to the final match, and uh, I mean, this is historic. If he wins, only one other person in history, I think, had won sort of all four Grand Slams in the same year. But not only that, if he wins uh, this match last weekend, he, he will move beyond Federer and Nadal and, uh, for the most Grand Slams. Right, this is a paraphrase of an interview with him, but in one, in one, he said something to the effect of, I'm treating this match like it's the last tennis match I'll ever play. Those were the stakes 
for Djokovic. You're like, man, that seems like a lot of pressure, but what else is he going to do, right? He'd be like, no, I'm not thinking about it. Of course you're thinking about it, right? Uh, so he just owned it, which I, I was like, I kind of appreciate that, right? Like, I mean, what else can I do? This, it's, this, I got to treat this like I'll never play another tennis match. If you guys watched it, you know what happened. What happened? He lost in straight sets, no less. Medvedev, Daniel Medvedev, I mean, just took it to him. And uh, I don't know if you watched some of it, but uh, it was kind of hard to watch. There was a moment sort of as he knew, he knew defeat was just like imminent. And he sits down in his chair. People start cheering for him. And uh, he puts a towel. I mean, this is a guy, peak, peak athletic performance. If, if we want to use like holiness in other categories, he would be the, he'd be the like picture of holiness in tennis, right? I mean, he is, he has, he, he, he is nigh perfect. And he sits down in his chair and he starts crying. Like you can see it, like his lip quivering, over, overcome with sort of the weight of the moment, the emotion of the moment. It, it, it was, it was kind of hard to watch, but an interesting thing about Djokovic, and if you guys are tennis fans, you know, I don't, I don't want to over speak here, but I think he, he kind of has an ambivalent relationship with his fan base, or he, he doesn't enjoy the same sort of like uh, adoration, I think, that like Federer and Nadal do. Like Federer and Nadal kind of, they just, the loyalty and love of, of, of their followers is, is palpable. And Djokovic, I feel like, has, has, you know, in his time in, in the big three, it's kind of existed sort of on the fringe of that. Some people kind of like, you just give him a hard time. or you, just, you can feel that kind of tension in his relationship with the fans. And in his interview, after losing what would have been an historic match in his life, right? In a generation, I don't, I don't want to see that again. What he said in the interview was, my heart is filled with joy. And I'm the happiest man alive. Right? Let's just let that, just kind of sit here for a minute. In this sort of epic loss within his profession, again, all things sort of in, you know, context here. We're just talking about tennis, I know. But all of his life aimed at this moment. All of his hours of sweat, injury, recovery, preparation, honing his skill, aimed at this moment up short and his response is my heart is filled with joy and I'm the happiest man alive there's lots of takes on sort of this moment in Djokovic's life as I've read uh, in the weeks since but one author I thought was uh, has helped me here that it's that it's interesting that this is his response uh, in this moment you can, you can feel it right it's like his immortality his his butter if you will comes up just a little short right uh, and in this moment, you can feel it kind of all crashing down. And yet, his response, my heart is filled with joy, and I'm the happiest man alive. It struck me, it's, it's, it struck me as interesting that uh, for Djokovic here, what makes the difference in his life is the experience of love in the middle of his failure. That at the moment, right, again, it's just tennis. I, we're being a little dramatic. I know that, especially with the guitar. It really helps. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, I didn't mean to put you on the spot here, I'm sorry. 
But I do think it's a beautiful picture of the gospel. That what, what he will point to as a moment of joy that, uh, <laughs> is, that, is that he experienced love from the crowd or whatever at the moment of his failure. I would suggest to you, right, that this is the gospel. This is the good news of the grace of Jesus. This is what Peter is driving us back to again and again. You will always be, you, you will always be too little butter on too much bread. It will happen. It's inevitable. Sin has ravaged and broken our hearts. You will be too little butter on too much bread. And yet, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Loved us in our failure. And that grace makes all the difference. Fills us with a joy and love and purpose that we can know in no other way. And so I encourage you this morning. I don't know your story, your experience. We're going to take communion together. But I encourage you with the beginning and end of Peter's passage here this morning. Maybe your eyes have been distracted. The pull of life on your heart for all kinds of reasons has pulled you away. I, I want to bring your attention back to the grace of God to you and Jesus. And maybe it's familiar to you, but it's like, uh, it's, it's sort of this thing that's maybe always been there and it's lost some of its, uh, it's lost some of its weight force in your life, like Peter, I want to encourage you, crave what nourishes you. And what nourishes you and me this morning is the grace of God to us in Jesus, that we don't live up to our calling first. No, first we live out of God's grace to us in Jesus. Thank you for listening to the Park City Church Podcast. To learn more about our church and or to find ways to get involved in our community, Visit us at parkcitykc.com or follow us on social media at parkcitykc.com.